Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero. Jim. Hey, Catherine. Um, what's the latest? How are you? Um, you know, getting by. I think, uh, I don't know where to begin. Here, here's what, uh, here's what's on my mind. Um, I saw an interview with Deborah Burks, the White House task force coordinator. Um, she said basically we're at a point where around 100,000 deaths is pretty much the trajectory we're on minimum. Does that line up with your sense? I mean, is that yeah, like that is exactly that's sort of the lower end of what's been projected for a month. It's just we we didn't we didn't want to put exact numbers on it, mm-hmm. right? But when you had a, a roughly one percent case fatality rate on a disease that was going to sweep across the nation over the course of a year and infect forty to sixty percent of people, yeah, it's obviously a function of how overwhelmed our healthcare system gets. But that's a, not a high estimate at all, and. What's troubling is that Dr. Burks, Dr. Fauci, and others were weren't saying that earlier. Right. Honestly, I think that those numbers are actually important to throw around as best you know them at the time, because others, as other estimates, put the number at one point five million, and one point five million deaths in the U.S. Yeah, and that that I mean that's if we did this thing where we opened everything back up and right. let it go right. and. So the thing she said was that it's going to be around 100,000 if social distancing is practiced perfectly, which right. is, what What does that mean? Like, we're not doing that presumably yet, right? I mean, not certainly on a nationwide scale. Yeah. I mean, some people are doing an amazing job. Yeah, but they're, they're all of these um, employees of Instacart and grocery stores mm. and everything and, and people in the healthcare system who are saying... We have to go to work. We're essential workers, but we're not being given the protective gear and sick leave. Uh, yeah. So that's a problem too, right? I mean, that's not perfect social distancing. In a perfect social distancing world, essential workers would be protected. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty aggressively, right? Everyone who's out there right now delivering food or working at a grocery store, working at a pharmacy, should have a mask and should be equipped with like some hand sanitizer on their belt. And that's the unfortunate part is how those resources are being rationed, which even the people who are working with knowingly sick people in the hospital don't don't have enough right. masks. So yeah, I think that that's that's our real weak point. Right. So that's one way that social distancing is not being practiced perfectly. There are other ways in that, you know, different areas of the country are seeing very different rates. Dense cities are seeing these cases spike and have been fastest to practicing aggressive social distancing, but there's a lot of variation across the country. And it's so hard to understand how this is real if it's not happening yet where you are. And that's part of the problem too, right? Seems like it. For all of us in New York too. We watched it happen in in China and then in Italy and Spain and elsewhere and we're very slow to accept that it was here. So, I, I, yeah, I don't know what is really driving some people to be much more, much more risk-averse than, than others, even when the virus isn't yet at their doorstep. Right. 
Well, that's what we're hoping to figure out today is get some better sense of how people across the country are sort of internalizing this situation and reacting to it. And um, McKay Coppins has been writing about this. Uh, Never heard of him. Just <laughs> McKay Coppins, who's a wonderful, brilliant writer here at The Atlantic. We want to call him to figure out why we're seeing such variation in reactions to this situation. Hello. Hey, McKay. Hey. Hey, McKay. How are you doing? Um, good, I think, all things considered. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's a whole thing. It is a whole thing. That's a that's a good motto for this time. <laughs> it's a whole thing. What are the considerations that, uh, that what's it like to have kids right now? <laughs> um, I think it's a lot like it is to always have kids, but like magnified. So uh, my kids are young. I have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a one-year-old. And it's always like somewhat exhausting. And it's like five times as exhausting now. Um, because they have to be entertained all the time. You know, like they're not really... Like we can send them into the basement to play with Legos, but that only lasts so long, you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> and And also... You know, Annie, my wife has been like trying to homeschool the kids during the day while I work. And then, but like, you know, the, that just leaves the one-year-old to kind of wander through the house, like ransacking rooms, you know, so she'll like (laughs) run into the room where I'm working and pull all the books off the shelf. And I just like, in a like defeated way, let her because it like entertains (laughs) her for three minutes. So... That, that's how things have been going. Do you think your older kids understand what's going on? Like, it, do they have a sense of what's, what, what is their interpretation? So we've been trying different strategies. Like in the early stages of this, like in, you know, a few weeks ago, we thought that we could maybe get away with like not giving them very much information. Mm-hmm. And they knew the word coronavirus, but like didn't really know that much about what it meant. Just like Catherine. <laughs> just like me honestly Uh, but lately there have been I mean we've had to tell them more you know and we're careful about not saying like too many scary things around them Um, yeah Jim's been doing the same for me it's been helpful (laughs) but they have a lot of rules and so we have to explain them and they've you know like I, I can tell that they're a little scared when our governor kind of announced that schools would be closed for the rest of the school year, I guess it was like a week or two ago, mm-hmm. we sat them down and told them and our five-year-old son, he, he was like trying to be brave, but he was getting oh. all teary and was like, I just don't want to get coronavirus. Oh <laughs> my God. And so we had to like, ex- you know, comfort them. So we're trying not to dwell on it too much, but it's obviously right. a weird time and we know it's going to like shape them in, in all kinds of ways. Probably. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, anyway, well, we wanted to, to call you and talk to you about politics and polarization and how this is all going. But I, I was hoping to ask you first just about your stockpile because you were way out ahead <laughs> on this. Uh, it's still so weird that I like made this public and people <laughs> know about this. Is it okay? I, wrote, I mean, I think it's yeah, like, yeah. Oh, I, wait, I missed the stockpile conversation. Well, so I wrote a, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic uh, earlier this month called The Stockpile of Food in My Garage. Well, the first headline, which I loved, was, let me tell you about my cans. Yeah, unfortunately, that 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 didn't survive the, <laughs> the editor's vetting, but that was also my favorite. 
So, so tell us about your cans. So I um, am a Mormon and Mormonism has a long history and long tradition of encouraging members to uh, store food and emergency supplies in their house. And it, it's kind of rooted in like, you know, Mormonism's traumatic history of going through a lot of, you know, persecution and being driven out of various uh, states. And they have this whole pioneer history and it's all entangled in that. But how it translated for me as a kid growing up in suburban Massachusetts was we had a section of our basement in our house basically looked like a grocery store aisle. Like my dad built big wooden shelves and we had a bunch of cans and non-perishable food there. But I, I, I always kind of felt like it was you know, weird, but like, I didn't make that much of it, but I, it also did not resonate with me at all. Like it was just one of the parts of my faith that I just never really got. Um, right. Did you, and you never had to use the stuff? No, no, definitely not. I mean, and that, that's part of it. Like the idea of a systemic food shortage in suburban Boston, (laughs) you know, in the nineties and early aughts just was so far-fetched to me. And that's like partly a, a, you know, a product of my own privilege and uh, just my own situation. But like, I just couldn't fathom. It, it, it was like a zombie apocalypse. Like the idea that we would actually have to like turn to our food storage seemed outlandish to me. So what did you think of it as just sort of a, a ritual or a Yeah. A, like a kind of like, this was something? like a faith tradition that, you know, it show it was kind of a Mormon signifier. Um, and then when I grew up and it got older, it got it like resonated less and less with me, especially when prepper culture started to become like a thing that people were aware of. Um, And, you know, there were reality TV shows and articles about doomsday preppers and uh, you know, people, you know, you, you started to associate it with people who are like stockpiling ammo in their basement, you know, Mm -hmm. and building bunkers. Like that was just something I didn't want to have anything to do with. And like Alex Mm -hmm. Jones was involved, you know, like, Mm -hmm. This is just, it, it kind of embarrassed me, basically. I thought of it as kind of an anachronism at best and a, like, kind of toxic subculture at worst. But as you, you know, went out on your own and have your own family, did you continue the practice? <laughs> so <laughs> what's funny is that I didn't. So I got married and we moved to uh, to New York uh, around the time our first daughter was born. Um, my in-laws, I think, started to come to the conclusion that I was like a complete like preparedness dud, you know, (laughs) (laughs) because I was like, I just was refusing to participate. And, you know, we lived in a small apartment in Brooklyn. Like it was not at all. He's a great guy, but I mean, he does not have Yeah, I think they liked me, but they were like, this guy is not going to save our daughter in a famine. (laughs) So (laughs) for what happened is like over several Christmases, they started giving us like foisting large cans of food on us. And I will admit that I was very annoyed by it. And like, we would be like shoving cans of like freeze dried bell peppers in under our bed, you know, and I would be like grumbling to my wife about how we don't have space for this and you need to like talk to your parents. But anyway, we kept it. And, but what's funny is eventually, so we moved to the DC area and we got a little bit more space and we ended up just shoving all this stuff that we accumulated over like several years from my in-laws 
into our garage and basically forgot about it until the last few weeks. And then when did this start? I mean, when did it dawn on you? Oh, this is what this is for. (laughs) Well, what happened was, I mean, a few weeks ago, I went to a local grocery store to get some food that had been like totally picked over by panic shoppers. And uh, it was also like in the midst of all the news, like it was kind of starting to dawn on me how serious the virus was, you know? Um, And I was, you know, frankly reading Mm -hmm. stuff that uh, (laughs) that James was writing and like it just, it all was starting to become clear to me, you know? And well, no, it's good because I basically got home from this like very unsuccessful trip to the grocery store and sort of like, sheepishly told my wife that maybe we should go take inventory of our food storage. Um, and she, <laughs> time, time to, to her credit, did not like give me too much crap about it, though she did, um, she did agree with me that like my in-laws were going to be insufferable if we actually ended up needing to use this stuff. Um, but, you know, the thing that I realized as we were going through it is that like, it gave me a kind of sense of peace and comfort going through it. it. And it, I likened it to basically like a lot of rituals of faith, which are like not rooted in rationality. They're rooted in like tradition and, you know, faith and belief and like hope for, uh, you know, a better world in the future. And I think that that was kind of how I felt going through the camps, you know, that, that's what. Totally. Totally. Order mm-hmm. and control. Yeah, this is what we're after in these moments, right? Even you can't control the virus and we don't know where it's going. And we tend to seek out these things where we go back to our arranging things we can control and making sure we have stockpiles of the basic thing. Like, I think that was the toilet paper instinct, too. Of like, yeah, it's just something I know how to do. I'm going to have enough toilet toilet paper paper and (laughs) clean myself. (laughs) And gosh darn it, I'm going to do it. (laughs) Yes, you, you get me. (laughs) um well so so that was your experience a couple of weeks ago and then when did you start to realize that this was kind of intersecting with your coverage of politics well i mean obviously there had always been like a political strain of this story which was the government's response and the administration's response and you know what the president was saying about it and um, and that that had, you know, always been part of the story. But I think what I realized, because I, 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 you know, I've been following pretty closely the kind of broader Trump messaging apparatus. So like the Trump campaign in the White House, but also like the broad coalition of conservative media that's pushing his messages. And, you know, for the m- most part, with like a couple you know, breaks of, of sanity, they, they have been either downplaying the pandemic or kind of finding political scapegoats to save the president. And so if you turn on Fox news, you listen to right wing talk radio, like you're hearing every day, um, this kind of drumbeat of, I mean, lately what it's been is we need to reopen the economy. And we, we, if we're thinking about this as a war, we should let the elderly sacrifice themselves so that we can get the economy back up and running. And that, that it's that message is constant, like on, in, in conservative media. And what I realized through reporting and talking to people 
is that um, that that message is filtering down into kind of individual day-to-day interactions across the country in ways that I don't, you know, I think polling has captured some of it. Um, but like, I, I do think this is an area where like talking to individual people about their experiences is helpful because you're starting to see that like so much else in American life, it's starting to become polarized, at least with a certain subset of Americans. Um, was something that I noticed when I first started writing these stories that people were calling panicky at the time uh, and, and maybe weren't panicky enough is that I had actually a very, it, it seemed a, an adamant audience in the far right that I didn't norm, don't normally have, mm. uh, w- you know, without naming any names I could see, you know, people tweeting the stories in an earnest way of like, hey, everyone should read this <laughs> in a way that normally I'm from people I'm, you know, normally used to kind of uh, climate denial, birtherism type stuff where I'm just like, we are on a completely different reality plane. And (laughs) so am I getting something really wrong here or why are we aligning with this? So that's an interesting point. And it's an important kind of wrinkle to all of this because if you chart kind of the right wing's response to this over the last like two months or so, it's been kind of a roller coaster because early on, like early, early on in February or whatever, like when we were seeing even January, when we were seeing the effects of the virus uh, in other countries, um, that it was kind of the far right that was, they were among the first to like take it really seriously. I think in part because it like fits with right wing nationalist narratives about, you know, like globalism is bad and we should shut down, close our borders and shut down travel and global supply chains are suspect and things like that. Right. So you saw people like, frankly, even like Steve Bannon and, uh, and lesser, less extreme figures like latching onto this story early on. Then what happened is it's, it reached the United States and it started to cause political problems for Donald Trump. And the president started to play down the pandemic. And so you saw this split in the right-wing media, which is most of the people who are just kind of basic tribal partisans, like pivoted to the president's message, which was playing down uh, the seriousness of of what was happening. You still had kind of further right-wing, more ideological voices like continuing the drumbeat of saying, this is really serious, we have to take this seriously. But for the most part, um, most in conservative media were kind of latching on to the president's message. And then when the president pivoted earlier this month to saying, okay, now this is a war, we have to take it seriously, I'm a wartime president, then they pivoted back. It's, I, I'm getting really into the weeds, but I, it's important to understand because I think a lot of people probably who listen to this podcast are not following Sean Hannity's TV show every day, you know, on Fox you never Fox. know, Mickey. It's, it's possible. I, I don't want to make assumptions about our list. We would like everyone. To <laughs> sure, I agree. Um, but for those who are not following Sean Hannity's daily uh, newscast, um, you there there has been a lot of movement, at, but but overall, I think the general uh, lack of seriousness that they've given to the coronavirus in the past several weeks has resulted in a lot of people. You know, I write about, uh, I wrote about for The Atlantic about this one uh, suburban Atlanta country club um, as kind of a microcosm for this, where uh, the the club, you know, this is a couple weeks ago, implemented social distancing policies 
you know, like only one person per golf cart. We're shutting down the restaurant. We're removing the communal water jug, stuff like that. And what happened was the kind of younger, more democratic leaning members of the club were like slathering on hand sanitizer and following all the rules. And then the older kind of Republicans were making a big gleeful show of not following the social distancing guidelines. Like they would be shaking hands and patting each other on the back. And one of the people I talked to said they overheard uh, the, the Republicans making jokes about how this was a stupid hoax. And then they kind of defiantly piled into the golf carts uh, all next to each other. It, it was almost like trolling, but it was like a way to signal their political allegiance in a way that obviously could be very dangerous. But it was a massive cell phone. Cell phone. <laughs> cell phone. As the, not, not a cell phone. Yeah, no. Not a, <laughs> as, as, the, as the kids would say. Uh, yeah. It, 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 you have someone in your piece also talking about how they, you know, there could be an ideological disregard for or, or dislike of any rules uh, like this. Mm-hmm. Of just I don't like when the government tells me to do things, period. Um, but there's also a dislike of social socially enforced codes right like so we could either you know make a law or we can socially enforce norms and we can shun and stigmatize people who uh aren't obeying with social distancing neither of which seems to be really appealing to a certain strain of individualist yeah i mean just from like a philosophical standpoint a lot of american conservatism is founded on this idea of like individualism and Uh, libertarianism and freedom to do what you want to do without anyone else telling you not to do it, right? And I should like make the caveat here that a lot of the polling so far shows that the vast majority of Republicans and Democrats are, at least they say they're, they're honoring social distancing, right? They're trying to follow the best practices and being responsible. This is more happening kind of on, I think the fringes, but I think it's possible that it becomes more mainstream. But you know, like you mentioned, this one libertarian woman I talked to said, I am a libertarian, I don't like being told what to do. And so she had kind of two arguments. One was that the government shouldn't have the right to shut down all these businesses and, you know, completely derail our society. Um, But then the other thing that she almost seemed more kind of invested in was that she just really hated all these people on social media who were shaming and stigmatizing anyone who wasn't staying inside their house. Like that to her was just completely um, anathema to how she sees the world. And her whole live and let live philosophy uh, is being kind of trampled on by all these social distancing rules. And and you see that, I think, uh, in, in a lot of parts of the response to this. I mean... Is this something that is unique to us as Americans? Do we just not know how to talk to each other always? And so, of course, this is happening this way? Or is this surprising in some way? I think there are a couple factors that have made the response different. I don't know. Like, I haven't tracked how, like, the Italian right, uh, you know, responded to this um, differently. But I think that one thing is that our country is really big. And so far, the early stages of the pandemic have played out more seriously or acutely in kind of large coastal urban centers, right? Um, And so like, if you are a guy in Plano, Texas, like one of the guys I talked to, to him, he's looking around, he doesn't know anyone who's had the virus, or at least as far as he knows, he, he kind of sees this all as like a massive overreaction. 
Or he might say something like, yeah, it makes sense to, to have these severe measures in places like New York City, but like, come on, th- this is not serious enough to shut down every business in Dallas, right? So that's like, that, I think that's part of it is p- just an inability to see beyond the immediate surrounding reality that you have. I think that the other thing is, yeah, like, I mean, look, this is not, <laughs> not the first non-political thing that has become politicized and polarized in American life. I mean, everything, it, you know, to a certain extent has become kind of part of this political tribalism. And, you know, broadly speaking, there are these two political coalitions in America that have uh, arranged themselves not just by what ideological beliefs they have, but by, you know, what kind of TV they watch, what kind of music they listen to, the geographic areas where they cluster in, um, what kind of, you know, food they eat. Uh, You know, there's all kinds of other social signifiers that are associated with these two political coalitions. And it's easy to see, even if it shouldn't be, how something as non-political and non-partisan as, you know, social distancing, not getting sick from a, you know, pathogen that's spreading throughout the country could become politicized. I, one question I do have, I'm trying to understand kind of the root of this. In, in some ways, I'm wondering if this is kind of a sort of experiment that shows us sort of how polarization plays out in our country because it's so acute. Mm. And I guess I'm wondering what what is it telling us about uh, the way our country functions. You know, uh, before um, before all this happened, as I wave generally in the air, um, I was <laughs> I was covering before this whole thing. Yes, before the the, the whole thing. Um, I I spent a lot of time covering the kind of disinformation architecture that the the Trump campaign was relying on for re-election. I wrote a, a piece for the, the March issue of the magazine about it. Great piece. Um, Everyone should read it. <laughs> thank you. Um, but but what I was struck by was that there is, you know, the, the this infrastructure, this architecture is so sophisticated and elaborate now that it, it is very easy, and we've heard this before, for people to kind of live in their own alternate reality, right? Like you you have entire industries of people who are who are paid and make their money off of kind of feeding you a validation for your ideological priors. And this happens on the left and the right. But I think that in this particular circumstance, what you have is an alternate reality on the right that's being fed by ideological media by the president that is much less tied to what public health experts and doctors and scientists are saying than the one on the left, right? And so um, yeah. So I, I do think that it's hard to puncture that that information bubble. Now, I will say most polls will show that, you know, around nine, bet- somewhere between 90 and 95 percent of Americans say that they're, you know, doing they, they've changed their lifestyle somewhat uh, in, in response to the coronavirus. So how often is it in this polarized country that you have 90 something percent of Americans that agree with anything? Right. And like, maybe this is one you you could look at this as like a positive story. But to me, the fact that there's any partisan difference um, in in how you respond to a completely non-political event, a non-ideological event is troubling. And I think that it shows a lot of the kind of forces that have been work at America for a long time. 
Right. Part of me is wondering, though, if there is something genuine buried beneath mm. um, all of this sort of distortion. And if there is some sort of genuine constant tension in American life between sort of individualism and self-sufficiency and certain realities of us being dependent on one another and mm. interconnected. And I, I'm wondering if some of the underlying debate about this is sort of us collectively having to figure out, well, how interconnected are we? And are we actually more interconnected than we would like to think, even though we have these mythologies of self-sufficiency? Yeah. I think that I, th I, I, I it's really interesting to me. I, I like one of the things I'm really interested in is how this does, this crisis might change um, y y the ideological makeup of America. Because th there are two things happening. Like one is, you're right, this like se this idea of self-sufficiency and individualism that's in tension with kind of more communal instincts um, are has always been there in America. It's probably one of like the founding philosophical differences between the two major political coalitions. And, and this is, it's always been there and it forms a lot of our politics. Like, I, I also think that I was talking to a more conservative person who is practicing social distancing and all of that and has said, you know, I feel like, I, like my whole ideological world has been turned upside down because what you're seeing is a lot of, he, he was saying, like you're seeing a lot of people on the left who tend to not talk as much about individual responsibility in our politics now saying, mm -hmm. you know, one of the only ways we can fight this is through individual responsibility. Everyone has to take action. Then on the, but, but on the end, you have people on the right who are, you know, agreeing to unprecedented communal government and systemic action that they, you know, should theoretically be opposed to. So I, I do think our politics are being scrambled by a lot of this. And, uh, you know, also, this is probably for another podcast, but there's all kinds of civil liberties questions that I think will right. be revisited uh, after all of this that, uh, you know, so I think that there's a lot of big questions that are unanswered right now. And I think a lot of people will be kind of revisiting how they see the world once we're kind of through this. Well, thank you for talking to us, McKay. Um, are freeze-dried vegetables actually good? Um, I will... Like, can they... Are they horrible? I will... I gotta go to the grocery store again, so I'm know, trying to figure out what to get. I will let you know when we actually, like, crack open that can of freeze-dried bell peppers. I, Got it. At, so far, it hasn't gotten to that point. Um, <laughs> That's gonna be a last last resort. But, Got but it. I, I actually have been thinking that, like, maybe at some point, one of these nights, we'll decide to, like, do a, a, Mormon, a Mormon food storage dinner where we just, like, try yeah. to make a meal out of that stuff and see what happens, so... Um, I'll, I'll we'll keep us posted. Yeah. Good luck with uh, with this yeah. whole thing. Really, really <laughs> great to have you. Yeah. Thanks, guys. It's so soothing to listen to smart people talk. So I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we're done for the day. This show was produced by Alvin Melleth and Kevin Townsend with help from Anna Waters and Jacqueline Landry. You can write us at socialdistanceattheatlantic.com. We really appreciate all of the emails we've been getting so far, and, and um, we're reading them all, and sorry if we haven't responded to you, you yet. But um, if you get in touch with us, let us know if it's okay if we use your name or not okay. 
And then, um, yeah, if you feel like you're in a position to support The Atlantic right now, you can do that at theatlantic.com slash support us with a subscription. That'd be great. Okay. We'll talk tomorrow. Okay. Thanks. Bye. bye. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's beyond zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our beyond zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero.